Good morning, Team Krulak community, and welcome back to another episode of Down the Rabbit Hole on the Russia-Ukraine war with our Russian subject matter expert, Dr. Yuval Weber. I will take a moment here to do a quick shout out uh, to my fellow Marines and uh, everyone out there in the Team Krulak community who celebrates the Marine Corps birthday. We are, this is the one day I, I told Yuval, this is where we have our fancy hats and our fancy pants and where we have, it's the one day we were having an excuse to be super obnoxious to everybody else. Um, we do that more than one day out of the year, but this year or this day is the day there uh, that it's, it's it's socially acceptable. So happy birthday to all the Marines out there. And uh, we going back to the subject matter in hand, though, there have been some some pretty, pretty big uh, sea changes in uh, what's been going on over in Ukraine over the while. Well, it was interesting because after the last episode it was a couple of days later, it was a pretty big um, high profile event that happened in the Black Sea or against the Black Russian Black Sea fleet right after the last episode. And then right before this one, we had uh, some other fairly big uh, um, news coming out of really, really coming out of Russia and then sort of Ukraine is watching to see if it's true, but developments in Her in the Kherson region, which we've been watching for a while. Um, so I think we're going to start with what happened a couple days after the last episode uh, to the, um, the, the Black Sea fleet, which just, just cannot seem to catch a break. So uh You've all, if you uh, welcome again, and if you want to sort of queue up what, what that event was against the Black Sea Fleet last week. So, uh, again, first of all, happy birthday to the Marines. Um, in basically the Russian version of the, the happy birthday song, um, one of the key lines is, it's a, it's a shame or a tragedy that a birthday happens only once a year. Um, so to find uh, the gruesomeness of uh, the birthday, but I'd like to ask you, given that we saw a, a major drone attack on the Black Sea Fleet, uh, what are the first two lines of uh, the Marine Corps song? As it happens, uh, the opening hymn of the or the opening line of the Marine Corps hymn goes from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. And to those who are not familiar with Marine Corps history, you might be wondering why why is that line in there? So I'm going to go on a little bit of a historical discursion here. But it's going to come back to what we just saw, um, the attack that Ukraine conducted using unmanned naval drones, uh, surface water drones against uh, some of the ships of the Black Sea Fleet while they were at anchor. So and then and this kind of ties back to like, you know, what is what's new about this, if anything? Um, if not, what are the implications here in 21st century warfare if it's not a new thing? But short of Tripoli reference back to the Barbary Wars, which were a. Uh, a series of U.S. naval and ultimately um, land ground Marine Corps employments against sort of the loose affiliation of states that were that were collected under the banner of the Barbary states. This is looking back at some of the um, the Arab nations on North Africa uh, at the time. And uh, these these nations conducted sort of commerce raiding, um, commerce raiding, hostage taking and um, and ransom if you know ransom notes if you will against merchant ships that travel through the mediterranean sea off the off the coastline of north africa uh, it was a problem for a long long time and so about the looking at thomas jefferson's first term as president of the united states so where this is you know very early 1800s here um european nations had sort of they'd done one or two things to deal with the barbary pirates either they simply paid them off like came into a, an arrangement where you know, paying the ransom was easier than having to to go and get the ships and their sailors and their cargo back. So they either pay them off or they would send their own naval units down to patrol those waters and protect their ships as escorts. 
if they had the military might to do so. Uh, the United States at this point didn't have the naval capacity to do that at all. So they were basically defenseless. Their U.S. merchant ships are basically defenseless against the predations of the Barbary pirates. And uh, finally got to the point where, you know, you know, Jefferson and his cabinet were like, we're, we're not going to do this anymore. And um, short version is there were a series of U.S. Navy squadron deployments over the course of a few years. Each squadron um, that was sent had, was a little bit more capable and was able to cause more effects against the, the Barbary pirates. And while this was going on, Jefferson's uh, cabinet was in negotiation with the the brother of the Pasha or the Bay of Tripoli, which is sort of the leading Barbary state in this, saying, uh, if we'll help you out, we'll knock your brother off the throne, we'll give you some military support if you promise that when you're on the throne, you won't raid our ships anymore. And this turned into the uh, Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon and his small contingent of Marines and a Bedouin Arab force under this brother. And they marched their way to Derna, which is uh, it's a little bit east of Tripoli, if we're looking at the map here. And that's where the shores of Tripoli piece comes from. That was, you know, that's the first time that the Stars and Stripes was raised over the old world. And as it turned out, the Pasha of Tripoli saw the writing on the wall and negotiated an end to you know, an end to his rating of the American things. The brother did not wind up sitting on the throne. Um, you know, a little bit anticlimactic, but within these naval squadron deployments, on the third deployment, um, under Commodore Preble, I believe it was, U.S. Navy Commodore Preble, he was one of the most aggressive, like he was the most aggressive U.S. Navy squadron commander up to that point. The other two had been either ineffective. I think one was actually relieved for being incompetent or drunk a lot of the time or both. But like Preble was like, like, I'm going to go get him. And so there were there was very aggressive pursuit, a number of operations directly against the bar, the, the pirate ships that were in the harbor of Tripoli. One of those attempted operations was a what would have been called a fire ship back then, which was a a a, a vessel or a raft that was basically loaded with incendiaries and explosives. And you would sail it into the enemy enemy harbor where the enemy's fleet was at anchor and light it up and the plan was it would it would come up against the ship and light it on fire or if you had if you had enough explosives you get a big boom and you could cause some serious damage to the fleet and so the plan was to sail this sail one um called the uss intrepid which was a converted uh catch you know very small vessel but it's going to be loaded with explosives it would have a time fuse um the sailors would sail it up to a certain point get off the intrepid it would continue on its merry way into the harbor and then it would go boom and destroy hopefully most, you know, maybe all of the Tripolitanian fleet at anchor. As it happened, it didn't go as planned. The explosion detonated prematurely. The sailors were not able to get off. And so they were killed in the explosion. Nobody's really sure why uh, they, possible that they were taken under fire early and that they just, they sort of lit it to make it, to make it explode, you know, while they had a chance. But the bottom line is, Sailing incendiaries and explosives into a harbor to just to attack a fleet at anchor, not a new thing. Um, I'm not sure how back far historically it goes, but it's it's centuries old, at least, if not millennia old. So in um, what the Ukrainians uh, recently attempted against the Black Sea Fleet, not necessarily a new thing, but maybe an old thing conducted in a new way that has some implications that, uh, you know, raises a lot of implications. Um, one, I think it's it's a continued highlighting of the, uh, you know, 
vulnerability implies maybe, you know, a certain over, like lack of oversight on one thing, not convinced that it's just a lack of competence and on the Russian Navy side in terms of harbor security, right? Like they've already been, they've lost their flagship already. Um, they know that Crimea is not really safe territory because there've been multiple attacks and strikes in there, you know, against airfield and other targets. They've, they've moved the Black Sea fleet farther and farther away. Um, but even at that distance, there were not enough harbor security measures for that fleet at anchor to, you know, protect it from this, uh, this attack that had to have been launched by launched from a fairly long range. You know, I know there's not a lot of details that came out about it, but there were, there was some speculation that given, um, you know, the, the sea of the black sea is, is large, right? Um, you would have to transit those drones pretty far from safe Ukrainian territory to do this. So there was some speculation that maybe, um, there, the, some sort of, you know, team or surface flotilla had sailed to a certain point in the black sea. And then they launched the drones from there and guided them in the rest of the way within the range of the sail. I, I think that part is still kind of unclear, you know, but the point is this was, it's harder to like Russia, the, the black fleet is running out of safe havens. And if they value having that fleet as a capability, you know, I don't care how far away you are, there's basic security measures you take and Ukrainian drones just sailed on past it. And uh, I think also as well, the amount of damage, whether the, I think it was the Admiral Makarov was potentially the primary target. It's unclear if it got hit or if it did how much damage there was. And there was also discussion of a, a minesweeper might have been you know, possibly hit and damaged in the attack. Um, now, but one, again, the point is whether it's a combination of incompetence or, um, you know, really good Ukrainian tactics or, or some combination of both, <laughs> the Black Sea fleet is still vulnerable no matter how far they've moved it away from Ukrainian territory near the Black Sea, you know, wh which is said some things about uh, sort of Russian capability overall. Um, two, this, every, the big things that Ukraine seems to do are tied into their information campaign or their information campaign is tied into them. And so it was remarkable. Like I, I remember seeing on social media, they were the first, you know, first couple of postings about, hey, something just happened in the Black Sea fleet. And then like within hours, we had the video, right? From the Ukrainian side about it. And we were talking before we recorded, right? Some of it is pretty dramatic, like Hollywood type stuff of you got the drone, the bow, and you can sort of see there's a, you know, there's spray going on. There's warship in the background. And then this Russian helicopter comes in, you know, guns blazing. You got spouts of water popping up where the rounds are hitting in the water. This drone is just sailing onto its target, you know, but the tie, tying these, you know, these high impact uh, attacks against Russian high value targets and then tying the information campaign into it you know, very, very tightly. It's just an, another another indication of what information potentially gets you on a modern battlefield. And I think, it tie, it, again, it goes back to something that we have hit before a number of times is, you know, part of the, part of what you, Ukraine needs to do to keep the spigot of support on is demonstrating that, that they can use the things that they're given effectively, right? Well, I mean, doing a, a long range, um, surface drone strike on Russian capital ships when they still don't have a Navy means like the, the few things, the bits and pieces they had to put that together, you know, it's more, there's proof in the camera, proof in the video of their ability to, to do, you know, some, some pretty, pretty remarkable things with limited resources. So, Hey, if they can do that with limited resources, keep this big going. And, um, 
am able to get they'll get more be able to do more uh you know either more dramatic or more uh, more tactically impactful things and then the the third point and, and you know for us on the uh, on the u.s or allied side is the observers is you know it raises some some questions and concerns about what you do for your own harbor security when uh when unmanned drones are now in the game right and again it's not a new it's not a new tactic um unmanned technology is is obviously not new technology either um you know but it's it just it highlights again that ships at anchor are inherently more vulnerable than ships underway and the difference between we were talking about this as well before right the between a a manned suicide attack on something like the uss cole versus a unmanned drone attack is those devices the unmanned devices have a lower profile right harder to detect than a you know a boat that's got a bunch of dudes on it coming at you um it you know it's a much more challenging problem to have to defend against and you know I, shoot i'm trying to think the last time like a u.s fleet at anchor was attacked outside of pearl harbor um it was in the know. uss cole yeah i'm sorry yes yeah uss cole i just said it. you know but you know but we saw like we're at a ship at anchor is inherently vulnerable um and and the technology is not hard to get right like the uh to, to build a you know probably build a, a military grade and stack a bunch of explosives on it that's going to take a little bit of doing but to make an un, like an a radio controlled boat for example like that's not hard none of these things are hard to get or put together and um it uh you know are we are we ready are, are is the u.s ready in its own harbors or if the u.s is you know deployed overseas you know we've we've, all, we've obviously stepped up our our security procedures after the uss cole you know in in harbor close to territories that could be you know, unfriendly or potentially home to to non-state or violent extremist actors. Um, so, are are we ready ready for that type of attack against us? Um, are our allies and partners ready for that type of attack against them? Because you know, if we go to one of their harbors, you know, um, we're we're offering a big juicy target to somebody who's close by. No problem. I'm not. I'm not. You know, I wouldn't say that we're going to start seeing attacks at home, right? But our ships are expeditionary. They deploy all over the world. And the world just got a lesson in a a, uh, a a military without a navy can still cause effects against somebody else's navy. Um, that you know, U.S. Navy is big. There are lots of other countries out there and non-state actors that either have very small navies or don't have navies at all. You know, but they just got a little bit of inspiration of the art of the possible. Are we are we ready? You know, to defend against that kind of um, that kind of thing. So I think that's great. So basically putting it all together the ukrainians leverage an old tactic with new technologies but tied it into you know to dare is to do and having done something that is by itself dramatic goes into an ongoing information narrative that the ukrainians have which is we're doing extraordinary things with the limited amount of support that we're getting so the more support that we can get the more stuff that we can do and the sooner we can bring this war to an end from a position that is sustainable, at least for us, i.e. the Ukrainian side. And the consequences thereof is what does that do for Russia? This is not the first time the Ukrainians have done something dramatic. We, we've talked about attacks on um, the, the big Crimean bridge. We've talked about um, attacks on airfields in Crimea. We've had all of these different things 
and at each point, you know, the, the Black Sea flagship being sunk, um, again, by a country that doesn't have a navy. So when we talk about all of these things, Ukraine is able to say two things within the information narrative. We're doing well with what we have. Why, what would happen if we had more? And two, the Russians aren't able to basically keep up their end of basically fighting this war. So both in terms of demand and supply, the Ukrainians are doing better. And they're pointing to the Russians being unable to, to fight better. And that inability on the Russian side to fight better then essentially creates both obviously like anger on the Russian side, but then they have to reset from a position of relative weakness uh, relative to what happened before the attack. And right after this attack, this drone attack against um, their minesweeper, they moved a number of their ships further east uh, to like Novorossiysk and other places along Russia's southern borders, su southern naval borders, further out of harm's way relative to Crimea. And that's the thing of what Crimea is able to then do in order to maintain the momentum of their fighting conflict. The, the, so we had basically the big drone attack. Um, Russians get embarrassed one more time. And again, for those who haven't yet seen it, um, I was trying to remember the movie Navy Seals with Charlie Sheen from 1990. There's a very dramatic moment, as, as you put it, in which basically the boat is moving towards, you know, the target and the bullets are flying all around. There's a very similar scene in the movie Navy Seals in which Charlie Sheen, again, in his prime, in his, in his pump, um, with the Navy Seals to go attack the enemy ship and the bullets going through the water has a similar sort of really dramatic effect. So what we saw after this is basically in the very next news cycle, Vladimir Putin says, uh, because the Ukrainians have attacked a ship, which was guaranteeing the safety of the grain deal and the shipping lanes from Ukraine, uh, you know, to Turkey and to the outside world, that because Ukraine has uh, attacked a ship that was protecting those lanes, um, that Russia is exiting from that grain deal, that i.e. that would basically grain from Ukraine going to uh, the larger global south. The immediate fear across the world was, you know, this grain is critical to ensuring that global hunger does not create crisis situations, North Africa, Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa. The Turks uh, under President Recep Tayyip Erdogan then said, no, uh, this, this grain deal is ongoing. And he ensured that Turkish ships were going to accompany uh, meaning ships taking them out. Putin said that, you know, there's no more guaranteed safety for the air. The safety is borne by my name and by the Turkish flag. And Putin had to stand down less than 48 hours later. And the ship, and basically Erdogan said to the Ukrainians, um, you know, publicly signaling, you can continue to load the ships. You can continue to sail the ships. The Russians will have to fire upon us in order for these uh, ships to not go out. And then within uh, roughly two days, uh, Putin came back to the deal saying that their concerns had been addressed and that they will continue to um, enforce the deal uh, to allow the grain to leave Ukraine. So we can see in terms of, you know, what are the strategic effects of successful tactics and successful operations?
is they reshape the parameters of what President Putin, what Erdogan, what Zelensky, what everyone is able to do, because what these attacks reveal is relative strength and relative weakness. And the weaker that Russia gets, the more emboldened Erdogan becomes in terms of asserting the greater control of not just what happens to and from the, the, the Black Sea through the Bosphorus Straits, but also what happens inside the Black Sea. And this is probably a level of Turkish, let's say, power and influence that has not been realized since maybe the 19th century when the Russians were coming in um, under, like, in from Catherine the Great's time, you know, in the, the 18th century onwards, when Russia exporting or its influence south, this might be the highest level of Turkish influence since those uh, since those days. And that's in essence, drone attack, grain deal, and Russia's just a bit weaker thereafter. Yeah, and this I it's just been kind of remarkable to watch the sort of in real time, the continued, you know, diminishment of Putin's ability to throw his weight around. And it, it kind of reminds me of several weeks back, there was that that the Shanghai Cooperation Summit, maybe if I'm getting the name yeah. close to right, you know, when all the other, you know, not not world leaders, not regional leaders, just like local nation leaders of countries that used to be part of the Russian Empire, making Putin wait, you know, for the, for them to come out and shake his hand rather than the other way around. Um, and it really, it, this is just another data point that sort of gives the sense of there's, you know, some countries are starting to smell the blood in the water that, you know, the, that Putin and the, and his, his forces and the threats that he's making, he is less and less capable of making those real, um, you know, to the point where if you're Erdogan, you can just tell Putin, no, we're just, we're going to do what we want to do. You can't stop, you know, behind the scenes, but the implication is we're going to keep doing what we want to do. You, you can't stop us. You're not going to stop us. And we know that you cannot call our bluff. So it just, it, and you know, I, I kind of wonder, you know, who's going to who's going to be next to call Putin's bluff? Because everybody smells it. They know that because of the commitments in Ukraine and the that, you know, the levels of loss and the, the economic disruption just for that one mission, he can't bite off anything else at this point. That's a point to dwell upon as we then think, you know, the other major news of the week and the month, you know, of the abandonment of Kherson is that the power of any leader in effect is the power to persuade the power to convey life is better with me than without me that i will be able to rule indefinitely that my word is basically your actions and in that regard it's more acute in autocratic systems of appearances being reality so we have as you put in the shanghai cooperation organization meeting i guess last month or time has lost all meaning to me at this point but a couple of weeks ago let's put it countries that ordinarily would like a Russian leader would consider like Kyrgyz Republic to basically be a doormat of the basically Russian empire. It's, it shares a board of to protect from China sort of thing. The leader of a country as small as that, but also Erdogan directly. And this is, you know, coming up with these historical um, references is that I cannot think unless we really go to the days of basically pre Catherine the Great, when was the last time a Turkish leader was able to embarrass Putin one-on-one -on -one and then say no to a policy imperative of the Russian president? We have to go back really to the days of the Ottomans in which a 
a leader of someone you know in that area was defying a Russian leader, and that is basically, you know, it basically, it, particularly in these autocratic systems, power sort of functions like the way a bank run functions. It's if everyone believes there's plenty of money, then that leader is very strong and secure. Once people start to test and challenge how much power does that leader actually have, then you have lots of others doing it, and then no one wants to be the last one left in terms of not getting their slice on the way out. And that to me is extraordinary relative to where, you know, at the very beginning of this year, you had world leaders begging and pleading Putin, you know, at the end of a very long table, not to invade Ukraine. And now you have world leaders openly making, essentially openly insulting the Russian president. That's what we're observing in real time. That is, you know, when we then think about the announcement uh, yesterday. Uh, so today, obviously, November 10th, happy birthday, Marines, once more. Um, November 9th, the Russians announced that they are going to tactically withdraw to the uh, to the left bank, the east bank of the Dnieper River, thereby abandoning their major gain, their major sort of political gain of the of the war so far which was uh, Kherson city, um, which was the only regional capital from Ukraine that they were able to capture over the course of this conflict. And they did it at the very beginning, um, not by armed conquest, but by turning sufficient numbers of local leaders in order to then just switch Kherson from Ukraine to Russia. What were your initial thoughts when you when you read this news or when you saw this news? So I one of the things that jumped out at me first was and maybe you can explain this a little bit, but there seemed to be a sort of deliberate dramatic staging in how this this news was delivered, because I think it was Shoigu and I forget who the other Surovikin Surovikin. So like there's this it's this deliberate it's like this stage setup of, you know, I am I'm here to make my recommendation and then dramatic camera cut. Right. I accept your recommendation and we will go out and do it. So it was, it seemed to be very deliberately staged. You know, I'm not sure if, if it had the dramatic impact, you know, if it landed the way they wanted it to land, but it, uh, it was definitely sort of set up to, to convey a message, but it was also noted that this is general, like general talking to general for a withdrawal and surrender of what is supposed to be Russian territory because they annexed it. And it's supposed to be under the Russian nuclear umbrella. And generals don't make that decision on their own. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody, you know, that's that's political leadership decision. That's not a military decision. But the political leader was noticeably absent in that video. There was there was no Putin. There were just the two Russian generals. So that was kind of the first thing that jumped out at me. What are your what was did, did that strike you? And what are sort of the, the messages that we take from that? So we we have been talking about the the crumbling Russian position around Kherson City, I think at this point for maybe two months. Um, and even longer, if we can sort of dial back, the the success of the Kharkiv offensive uh, in the northeast of Ukraine was, in fact, the surprise, the deception, because the Russians were anticipating um, that the Ukrainians, because the Ukrainians kept talking about their Kherson offensive, we've been talking about that since summer. And in the summertime, we then observed that the Russians were putting more and more troops into the south of Russia, because again, Kherson is basically the, the area 
that defends, you know, on the map, it defends the approach to Crimea. And Crimea, as, we, as I've said, we've said a number of times, it's not Russia's Jerusalem, but it's Putin's. This is really the only thing that can't happen uh, for Putin is to lose Crimea. So the Ukrainians leveraged that knowledge in order to draw Russian forces south to protect Kherson, obviously to protect Kherson, they had their successes in Kharkiv, and they've reconquered thousands, like tens of thousands or low tens of thousands of square kilometers of their own territory. So at this point, you know, looking at the pre-war map, the the current map, the Ukrainians have reconquered half of what they lost from February onwards, and basically the the Russians only have two thirds of what they've taken. Uh, since 2014. So again, thinking about what the future looks like. But in that regard, these are the some of the best Russian soldiers that they have left. Um, we know that at, at a larger point, this is just like a debacle. And one of the things that you mentioned a moment ago of there was a, this sort of like this, uh, you know, very clearly scripted scene in which like the general and the general had been appointed, roughly speaking, a month or six weeks ago. Uh, already coming in talking about difficult decisions that need to be made. And it was clear that probably the only way that he took that position, that command, was in order to affect this particular withdrawal so that Russia could defend the left bank of the river much more easily than being marooned on the right side of the river with having their supply lines being interdicted on a daily basis. So he came in, the Russian media has pumped him up for a you know, month, six weeks, you know, this hero of Russia, this really tough looking guy. And he makes the big announcement that the defense chief takes. Now, this chief of defense, this Chad, is not a person who's ever served in the military, but he makes it appear as if he has had a long and distinguished military career. And we start to think as a political decision, it be I believe we've now identified for once and for all, who's going to be the fall guy for the rest of this conflict um, because a fiasco of this size needs somebody to blame and Putin is going to spend the rest of his days finding out who really let him down. Um, yes, big, big mystery. I can't wait for the, you know, the, the dramatic third act for when they find who done it in this one. Yes, uh, clearly uh, Putin knew that the, um, the invasion of Ukraine was going to take three days, that the genocide was going to be seamless, and um, the revision of the international order just a natural consequence. But clearly, he was not being fed everything that needed to uh, be fed to him. And so in that regard, we can start to see when you're talking about a political decision, someone has to be blamed for this. Someone has to be the face of the abandonment of Russian territory which is something that only happens under dire circumstances. Like we're talking 19, like 1941, the Germans are coming over the border. That's what we're talking about in terms of the invasion here. You can imagine, who do you think, you know, Putin's obviously an important person, can meet with anyone he wants. The person that he was meeting with on, on basically the day uh, uh, yesterday um, was basically Russia's public health chief. Sort of perhaps an equivalent that we can think um, of the like uh, surgeon like, general kind of thing. Sort of more like the like sort of like a surgeon general, like a Dr. Fauci type, you know, like those sorts of things, um, which made me then sort of pause and 
just like think to myself, you know, it's a bad news day when COVID is the better topic for you compared to literally whatever else is happening in your particular news cycle. So, yeah, and which is interesting because I, you know, I think, uh, well, it's kind of a sidebar discussion, but uh, it's it's not at all clear that Russia handled COVID, you know, particularly well. Um, so bringing bringing that back to the spotlight is, uh, as you said, a it's the least bad decision of something or thing to talk about or something that's even worse. Um, one thing I do I want to um, bring up as well is in some of the other after, after that initial you know reaction that staging video I saw you know there were uh, actually from Ukrainian media outlets some of which was uh, one of them from the the advisor to President Zelensky himself was sort of you know, like noting caution like hey they're saying this but we haven't seen anything yet and then you know since the announcement there's been some speculation as to whether this might actually be a for whatever talent Russia has left for information operations whether this is you know, something to try and entice the Ukrainians into attacking, you know, attacking at a disadvantage when they don't actually intend to leave. You know, so do we know enough yet to say whether, you know, that they're saying this to try and, you know, do deception operations and get the Ukrainians to attack? Are they maybe going to hold on to Kherson city itself and withdraw other forces? Or do we just not know enough yet to know to know um, what sort of what the what the development will actually be in terms of removal of Russian forces. So, sure. So anything is possible. We know um, just by sort of looking at the map is that the, I, I think it was estimated at its height, there are 40,000 Russian uh, troops, mercenaries, mobilized reservists, etc., cetera, um, plus civilian occupation officials uh, and just on civilian occupation officials. The Russian appointed head of the local occupation administration also died this week. Um, whether it, so he died in a road accident, um, whether it was just, you know, driving dangerously or basically just removing one, one loose cannon versus uh, several others unknown, but basically even Russia couldn't protect the life of its, um, of its main quizzling there. What we can see in terms of what the tactical, what let's call it a tactical withdrawal for a second here, is that on a political level, on an information level, this is a humiliation. Um, one person pointed out on Twitter that supporting the withdrawal, you know, supporting Russian um, action of like the the army leaving Kherson city to go to like the other bank of the river, where they have prepared defensive fortifications for the last couple of weeks. It'll be easier to defend. We can talk about the military aspects of that in just a moment. But if you support this, you are technically speaking in violation of Russian law because you are calling into question um, the totality of Russia's territorial integrity. However, if you oppose the tactical withdrawal, then you are calling into question uh, the Russian armed forces and publicly discrediting them. So both supporting and not supporting are both violations of Russian law. Yes, and when you described that before we started, it, it you know it echoed back what we titled the last episode and the quote that you gave, which is, "You do not understand Russia with the mind." I just like I just don't like what what do they think the like the people the Russian populace is going to make of that messaging? Like, what effect are they just hoping nobody talks about it? Right? If I if I can't if any if if I talk about it one way or the other way, I'm in trouble either way. So I just want to talk about it because I'll talk about it is illegal. Is that sort of the ultimate 
end state for this this little sort of exercise and double think? Oh, oh no, my, my my sweet summer child. Uh, if you <laughs> so this, this so this is the messaging that would have been familiar to um, if we were in basically the era of World War One, 1917, 1918. Uh, Lenin has just given up all the all the the Western Russian lands to like the German Austrians, uh, you know, to focus on the, like the revolution at home. What the Soviets always did what the Bolsheviks, you know, before and after were always able to look at is everything is tactical and contingent. So on Russian television, you have people saying the abandonment of Kherson is actually a genius move because the defensibility of the lines on the other side of the Djepa River will allow for a much more successful counterattack later in order to re-liberate re Kherson. So everything will be revealed in the end. So even a humiliating loss, humiliation in front of the rest of the world is just setting the stage for an even grander victory in short order. That's in essence, the messaging strategy that when you know Russian TV viewers are trying to figure out how do we balance like a clear humiliation versus we're going to win in the end. This is the consequence of making, you know, basically like tactical decisions that have strategic implications every single week when you're just trying to disrupt or win the news cycle is you find yourself in these contortions having to rely on basically conspiracy level thinking in order to find the way out of whatever the problem is. That's where the Russians are right where they are right now. So, in terms of like what's like the military logic, not having, you know, let's say 40,000 of your best troops basically being encircled, kettled, and destroyed, which is basically then reducing whatever level of compact combat capability they'll have going forward. And just to note, uh, one of the other bits that we had just today is General General Milley said that the Russians have lost. More than 100,000 killed and wounded in action. He said the same thing for the Ukrainians, but you know, the casualties are rising for the Ukrainian, for the Russians. We know that basically not just sacrificing the lives of the service members just because, you know, sunk costs are sunk costs means that the Russians are now in a position where they're trading land for time, ostensibly in order to train up the hundreds of thousands of citizens that they just mobilize into, into their militaries. We can sort of evaluate what is going to be the nature of this withdrawal, whether it's going to be pandemonium, whether it's going to be orderly, whether the Ukrainians, um, as you put it right before we started uh, recording, uh, you know, referencing Sun Tzu, like the Golden Bridge, allowing these uh, Russians to leave, or whether the Ukrainians want to go after these uh, these retreating soldiers in order to prevent not only them, you know, attacking in the future, but also being redeployed to um, Donbass or Kharkiv or any other areas. At its core, the Russian state does not yet have does not anymore have a very convincing narrative of how success is going to happen very quickly. What the Russians have been trying to do for the last number of months, once it became clear that the battlefield was not a friendly place for them or not a place where they were going to get a lot of success, is they were trying to reduce the, um, the support for Ukraine from abroad that has been 
as you put it earlier, a spigot of success or spigot of materials that has led to Ukrainian success. And, you know, it's worth mentioning just to sort of leave it, just to put it out there when the Russians do think about what is the true enemy. Again, watching Solo View of last night, they talk about, you know, Russia was unprepared for fighting against NATO. And they also discuss, you know, in terms of foreign support for Ukraine, the Russians and Soloviev said this, and I just need to introduce it in a very careful manner, is to say that it was clear that basically Kherson had to be abandoned for at least the last month. But they delayed it until yesterday, so as the news of the abandonment would not have any impact on the U.S. midterm elections. Because they were hoping for the United States, like, like most of the countries supporting Ukraine, they're hoping for more war skeptical voices to come to power and different components so as to have a, a tougher look on the extent of the support to Ukraine. And if that was basically a goal of um, what they wanted out of the, the, pres uh, the, the midterm results, then that's not happening. So what does success for Russia look going forward? That's again, the sort of thing that they need to come up with bigger and brighter ideas and the bigger and brighter ideas have the chance of just falling flat in more dramatic ways and thus exacerbating the problems that we're observing on the Russian side. Yeah. And uh, again, something talking about before we recorded, it's the the note about the election. You know, it's a curious data point, but it also sort of ties back to our ongoing discussion of like Putin just seems to say seems to keep making bad miscalculations over and over and over again. And, you know, it's not to say that he was the only one who, you know, sort of didn't didn't read the tea leaves right for the, the midterm elections. Obviously, it was it, it, the, the shape looked very different than a lot of, you know, punditry and, and some of the polling indicator. But the point is, you know, it, that was if that was something he was banking on, he's, he's been banking on all these things that he thought was going to happen since before the war started, you know, you know, going back to thinking his intelligence operations were going to undermine Ukrainian support, you know, leadership support, and he was going to waltz into Kyiv, you know, and then just this, this long trail of, of broken assumptions and miscalculations. And, you know, this is just one more, right? He, you know, separate question to, to whether the American people, whether we understand ourselves, you know, you know, but he, he thought he understood, understood us. He was banking on that as part of his strategy for the winter, you know, um, well, wrong again. And he's running out of weeks to be wrong and assumption and assumptions that can fail before he sort of hits a point of catastrophic failure um, that you can't recoup in another week. Um, one thing I we, we did not talk about this before, but I want to discuss it a little bit potentially with whatever, you know, sort of your um, uh, your thoughts on it is. Herson, you mentioned that, you know, that it was taken not not directly by military force, but an intelligence operation. And because I think there's a, a larger amount of either Russian speakers or Russian friendly people are in that area. But so I guess kind of knowing that, that there's a slightly dim different demographic that was in that region to start with. What do you think that if and when the withdrawal there is completed, what are we going to find that they've left behind? Um, we already know there's going to be no laundry machines because they steal everything they can get their hands on. But do we think we're going to find a, you know, a, a laundry machine less city, but otherwise largely unmolested, or are we potentially going to roll in and see another Buka? 
It's a great question. We know in the places where Russia faces faced resistance in their initial advances, um, whether it's like as grotesque as, as Bucha or, you know, as prolonged as it was in Mariupol, the Russians destroy every, they destroy everything, you know, in a medieval sense as a warning to the others. In Kherson, they wanted to make that basically the showpiece of the benefits of Russia. And so in terms of the physical infrastructure, unless this gets to the question, did they basically booby trap and mine everything on the way out, basically acknowledging that they're never going to return, or did they basically leave more or less the city intact because they do want to return? The condition of, and, and just to be clear, the Russians are still, they still have defensive positions around the city they're still trying, they're protecting the withdrawal. And we've observed like, you know, there's many pontoon bridges and sort of like ferries going. Um, if they basically destroy Kherson on the way out so the Ukrainians can't have it, that says a lot more about basically the maximum extent of their uh, war aims going forward. But if they basically more or less leave everything intact, then we know there's at least some basic political instruction don't destroy this town because we are coming back. And to me, that's going to be a great test of what the Russians think they can actually do. Um, and again, there will be there will be sort of like bloody basement prisons in which the resistors like were, ex were tortured, executed, um, you know, like left to rot. We're going to find that like that's because that's what the Russians do everywhere. And even within Kherson, like tr troops were you know, being like attacked on the street every single Yeah, we, we know there there's pretty clear there was partisan activity there, although yeah, you know, the the scope and scale unclear, but we, we know that it was it it was active. And then and so that the two questions is one, we're going to see just like violation of like human rights writ large. The extent of that is basically going to be the proxy of how difficult it was for Russia to govern. And two, whether Russia destroys Kherson on the way out, whether as they are leaving, whether they go and try to just break infrastructure a la Mariupol, just so the, the Ukrainians have more to rebuild that the city becomes less inhabitable. That will sort of, that will indicate, I think fairly directly what the Russians believe is possible for them in Ukraine. An unpleasant calculation to think of, of, uh, you know, because there's going to be more places that are going to be probably liberated. And we'll actually we'll talk about potentially other axes of advance here in just a second. Yeah, but it's it that, you know, I don't know. I don't know what you hope for that. They, you know, they they leave it alone and just get out or go scorched earth, you know, and because the implications of both are if they think there's a chance they're going to come back. You know, that's more data showing that no matter the, the you know, the the lack of success on the battlefield, Putin's going to keep trying, which means the war potentially continues for a longer time. You know, on the flip side, if if they just burn it all down, okay, maybe the war ends a little bit more quickly, but it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a desert of of rubble and bodies uh, for what's left. You know, either either alternative is not not pleasant to think about. So um, so going moving on to that next, you know, what's possibly next? Assuming that um, this withdrawal out of the Kherson region, you know, is ultimately completed and you have Russian forces back on the left bank of the Dnieper. 
we had talked about before, like they're, you know, the crossing that river, uh, you know, doing what we in the military call a wet gap crossing. That's really, really hard, especially if Russia has prepared defenses on the other side, which seems likely that they would be would be doing that to prevent, you know, or or at least make very costly Ukrainian crossing. And, you know, I, you know, sort of my, you know, personal personal feeling on is like, they would not want to do that. You know, the Ukrainian military would not want to do a forced river crossing against a well-prepared position. That's, um, you know, that's just, that's borderline suicidal. And to, you know, to kind of echo what um, I think President Zelensky had said in his video last night when the news first came out, I was like, you know, we're, we're trying to preserve every life that we can. So I see it very unlikely that they're going to try and do a forced river crossing. That said, what what other possible axes of advance might we start looking at now, you know, if and when the Russian withdrawal from Kherson is complete? So sure. So we're seeing that the the Ukrainians are continuing their offensives, obviously like less dramatic than it was a couple of months ago, because obviously the less territory that Russia and its uh, proxies in DNR, LNR have, the easier it is to defend, like in that in that regard. We, we can also observe on the latest war maps that the Ukrainians are less than 100 kilometers from Mariupol, a bit further away from Militopol, but those are two of the cities on the, the coastline of the Sea of Azov that are basically in between Donbass and basically the Kherson, Crimea um, region in the south. And so it could very well be that perhaps what the Ukrainians are thinking is, one, you know, we've had a lot of success, not by attacking Russia directly, and in fact, there was a brief period in the war where Russia's greatest success was by fighting according to its doctrine of, you know, heavy artillery and then send the infantry in on relatively small areas of land. Ukraine has had its success by going after the supply routes into basically Russian positions. We can imagine that given their, uh, the closer they're going to get to the Dnieper River, the closer they're going to get to Kherson City, they're, um, artillery range, their fires range, is going to basically cover everything between Kherson and Crimea. So probably in that direction, that's what they'll be going after basically uh, going forward. Any sort of railroad depot, ammunition depot, anything that is uh, relatively fixed or not terribly mobile, that's what they'll go after in order to make the supply of even those troops on the left bank of the river that much more difficult. We might also see given sort of Russian strength in LNR, DNR, is that the next place that the Ukrainians go to is basically into that center region, meaning towards Militopol, towards Mariupol, cutting the land bridge that Russia's been able to um, achieve over the course of the war um, that encircles the Sea of Azov. If they can cut that in half, that means that Russia will not be able to supply by land, you know, truck, uh, railway, et cetera, uh, basically everything to the, um, to the east of Kherson and Crimea itself. And that would be a major, uh, major victory for the Ukrainians, because at that point, the writing would be on the wall in a way that that's not true now, because, you know, we talked about, you know, uh, general Milia said more than six figures of casualties on both sides. And just to think like on the Russian side between COVID casualties, emigration, who knows how many millions is this demographic uh, hole going to cause over like basically the years of late Putin. But nevertheless, 
Russian casualty figures are going to increase because the people going into the fight now are people who are not prepared and not well suited, who are going to be at best poorly trained um, and at best very poorly equipped. So obviously Putin's willing to like use as many bodies as necessary in order to slow the Ukrainian advances, but what is going to indicate that on a strategic level, the war is lost? Kherson is not it, as embarrassing as it is, but perhaps losing Mariupol and Melitopol, which then suggests Crimea truly is in play, that might shape Russian uh, strategy going forward. Yeah. So, you know, I'm sure that as, you know, the first thing to watch is, is you know, going to be what shape, if any, um, the withdrawal from the Kherson region actually takes. And then, you know, depending on how long it takes to unfold, uh, you know, <clears throat> we are we're, we're going to be getting into the depths of winter uh, here fairly shortly. And that's going to have some sort of play on what other possible axes of advance might be there. Although, again, looking on, you know, some of the reactions to the news that came out yesterday, on some of the military, you know, or the analyst feeds I follow, there are, we, we may have talked about this before as well. There are reasons to potentially conduct a campaign in the, in the winter months. You know, it, it may not be the militarily the most easily, but there's, you know, there are potentially political reasons for Ukraine to try and attempt that, you know, but, and, and also there's, you know, military factors that cut both ways, right? Like it's, it's going to be harder to move, um, equipment suffers more in the cold. You have to be much more conscious of your own forces in terms of like cold weather gear and giving them the right food and the right shelter to make sure they don't suffer any, uh, you know, any health casualties basically from operating in the winter time. But that goes for the Russians too. And as we we talked about, I think it was a couple episodes ago, and then all the way back to one of the early the first ones. You know, uh, at their best when the Russians were preparing for their thunder run down into Kiev, you know, and the withdrawal after. They were leaving behind bodies that had very poor winter equipment um, that showed signs of frostbite. So at their best, they were still not doing the basic force preservation stuff to take care of your people in the winter months. And as you just mentioned, like their people are not the best anymore. Their equipment losses have only uh, only increased over time. You know, they, they they could be an extremely vulnerable force just in the physical sense during the winter months. You know, especially when they're not getting more cold weather clothing. On the flip side, uh, we and other European nations are. That's specifically one of the items that's been going over there is cold weather clothing. And and I mentioned, I think, like the the U.S. makes some very cozy cold weather clothing uh, that that keeps you in a good condition and ready to operate in cold temperatures. So, yeah, again, something something to watch and especially see how the timing of of the season um, aligns with the timeline of the withdrawal from Harrison and what time that leaves during the winter months for a possible, you know, winter, winter campaign down there near Melitopol, Mariupol. We, we can go for a bit, but I, I do want to sort of hit one of our bits that we often, often do here before we get to the end, which is the state of Russian media after the latest setback. And you described their response in a pretty, pretty stark term as they were discussing the news on all the, the talk shows. So the energy was, um, basically funeral type energy um you know there's always the people who said you know as i was mentioning earlier um it may look like a humiliating uh abdication of russian territory in a way that is reminiscent of the darkest days of our lowest points but don't worry the brightest days are ahead after the darkest storms so like there's that energy that this is going to be a brilliantly executed tactical withdrawal in order to affect 
a far more devastating counterattack. So that's one part of the energy. The other part of the energy is really trying to understand, you know, on, on these talk shows, who's at fault. You can't blame Putin because that's like the only thing. So like state capacity is starting to decline over Russia. Um, one of the news items that I saw today is something that has a lot of 1990s uh, just like vibes is um, two businessmen were coming from or two groups of businessmen were coming from Kazakhstan in order to buy business in Russia um, outside the Domodedovo airport, which is a, sort of one of Moscow's like main airports. Both of their cars were attacked by gunmen and they had four million dollars in cash stolen from their cars. That's that indicates a level of organized criminality uh, that hasn't been seen that obviously like organized crime in Russia is very strong, but that level of public violence has not been seen in large part during the Putin years. So when we think about state capacity, we have to distinguish from regime capacity. If you go on TV and say Putin is a strategic genius because our three day special military operation is entering its nine month and ninth month, like you will no longer be on TV as your best possible outcome. So the people on TV have to say, in essence, what, where was the failure of not anticipating that NATO would be even more devious than we previously thought? That in essence, what was, who's at fault for not understanding just the cunning of the Ukrainians to manipulate basically the existing warmongers to you know, join the fight against Russia. And on TV, they openly talk about these are the darkest days, um, basically since uh, Russian Empire days. Like in the fall of the Russian Empire is what they're afraid of is what they're observing right now. So people on Russian TV openly talk about empire, that this is an imperial war, that basically it's not NATO expansion is causing them to be uh, upset, but that NATO is helping one of their rebellious subjects of Ukraine stand up against Russia. That's their irritation. That's their anger. And so what we and so basically over the last couple of weeks and months, the mood has gotten really, really dark, specifically because the Russians are trying to figure out what's a face saving way that still says Putin is the number one guy indefinitely. And it's hard for them. It, it truly is. You can see these people really working hard to try to find something positive um, for the future. And in fact, one of the guests last night, she was saying, um, you know, the collapse of the Russian empire wasn't so bad because it led to an even greater empire thereafter. And then the host said, are you insane? Like it was, a, I mean, losing the Russian empire was terrible. We lost so many of our territories. And she said like, and then another person said, what, you know, uh, it wasn't that bad because Soviet Union was so strong. And the host goes, well, what about Finland? And the other guest says, well, we restored Finland to her independence. And the host then responds, what sort of, so what you're telling me is that we should find the, the goodness in the Victorian exit from territories and people. And that's the point where they're basically like, they had to gen gently move in a different direction for the conversation. And again, that's essentially what you're talking about. It, what, we're, what we're seeing on Russian TV is people upset 
that the imperialist war of choice is not going well and trying to find ways to cope with that underlying fact of the Ukrainian narrative coming closer and closer to the reality that the Russians have to live in. Yeah, you know, I, I can understand that they've, you got to spin it some way you, you, and you, you don't really have an option not to try and spin it into something good. Although, uh, you know, I'm, I'm playing the smallest violin in the world for how hard they have to work to go do that. Okay, as always, we seem to, we seem to really kind of maximize our time here but this you know there's pretty big development in the last 24 hours so it's worth exploring and something that you know it's it's really only just starting and as we said we don't even really know we haven't sort of seen any signs of movement or a sense of what the scope of the withdrawal is going to look like so definitely going to be a, a point to follow um over here over the next week and see what actually happens so you've all as always good to talk to you and appreciate you spending the time here with us for the the rabbit hole and the the broader team crew life broadcast community we are uh we're actually brewing up a few things here all, along a few lines for you all to kind of look forward to so on the broadcast line next week we have a we've got two episodes right now we have dan rice who is our new russia subject matter expert here at the Kulak center marine corps university so we're going to get him on for his inaugural episode and introduce you to you the team Krulak community and give you an idea of sort of the expertise he brings and get his assessment on on some of the latest happenings uh since the the party national party congress recently and the implications of that and then we're going to have elena wicker on to talk about what i'm i'm, I'm personally very interested to, to learn more she's done research into using artificial intelligence al algorithms to analyze language inside of American national strategy documents and sort of identify trends and key things that, you know, maybe were not consciously manifested, but, you know, a, an AI analysis pulls out. Separately back to the down the rabbit hole side, we've got, um, we're, we're going to have a joint episode here at some point, maybe, maybe a couple um, on a few themes. One is looking at um, the, the supply of Iranian weapons that over the last few weeks, they've been manifested on the Ukrainian battlefield. Like we've seen the suicide drones going into Kiev and other cities causing damage. You know, this came from Iran. Uh, there's been reports of you know, Iranian military operators operating out, you know, close by with Russian forces to, to train and operate those things. And then there's also been discussion. I don't know if the, the, the weapons have moved yet, but about uh, Iran supplying its own domestically made ballistic missiles to replace the stocks that Russia has used. So in a in an interesting sort of shift of weapons flow, Iran is becoming an arms supplier to support the Russian war effort rather than Russia being an exporter to some of these other countries. So we're gonna look at having, uh, bringing back Dr. Amin Tarzi and, and uh, Dr. Anzalone, the MEZ team here with Yuval to take a look at that. And then in the deeper future, we're gonna be working on you know, something nobody really wants to talk and think about, but it's out there is the um, sort of broader implications of use of nuclear weapons, you know, sort of it's it's been discussed whether it's it's plausible or not, at least this point in, in Ukraine is from the Russian side is not certain. But you know, the fact is they have those, um, you know, what are the the thoughts that would go into their employment there what are the implications for china and other countries that either have nuclear weapons or uh, are trying to develop them uh you know on a 21st century battlefield so not going to be a a necessarily a, a pleasant discussion but it's one that's important and something we haven't really focused on yet so that'll be here in the deep future 
but until then, uh, everyone enjoy the weekend to again, there's those Marines out there. Happy birthday, stay safe, be smart. Um, but make sure you, you, you've enjoyed the time you've all learned it. And, uh, we will look to see you all here on the next episode here. It will be, it'll be quite soon. So we'll be back with you here, um, very quickly. Thank you.